Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Joseph E. David. He is a professor of law at Sapir Academic College in Israel and a visiting professor at the Program in Judaic Studies and Law School at the University of Yale. His research focuses on Jewish studies, law and religion, legal history, and comparative jurisprudence, and he is joining us today to talk about his latest book entitled Kinship, Law and Politics, and Anatomy of Belonging. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. So this is a book that grapples with what may be somewhat uh, a familiar concept, the sense of belonging, but uh, as you develop the discussion of what it means or has meant historically, uh, it becomes more complex. So Let's try to address uh, from the beginning, uh, grapple with this notion of what does it mean to belong? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's a big question. I was trying to grapple with it. Um, I was trying to really sort out what does it mean to belong and what belonging is about. Um, well, it came first for my, I guess, uh, personal concerns, which intrigued my intellectual um, curiosities. I guess that belong. What is what? What does it mean to belong? It means that the other way around, being alone or solitude, is not a satisfying circumstances for us. We cannot. We cannot. Cannot go in terms with being alone. Being alone is perceived as a problem, and therefore belonging is in many ways an answer, a response to our existential um, experience of being alone. And so you describe uh, this partly with reference to, even though this is, you delve into the ancient history of the concept of belonging, you uh, make reference to modern psychological science in terms of the evidence that's needed in order to support the idea that we really do have a natural state of belonging or our natural sociability, right? Right. You know, we uh, we, we used to think about belonging as, as, as one of the fundamental needs of every human being. And indeed, it is one of the needs. Uh, but it is much more than, you know, it's even before psycholog- before psychology became became, uh, uh, you know, uh, science or a realm of knowledge. And before we observed it as a need, we see various attempts to either explain to what we belong and what does it mean to belong, and also to define the framework to which we belong. So if it is on the very uh, preliminary level of family and kinship, the question is, what does it mean to belong to a family? And what does it mean to be out of the family? How do you join a family? How do you becoming part of it? So I, I think mainly in English, the term belonging, which is composed of being and longing, encapsulates part of the very core meaning of belonging. It is something that we are seeking. It is something that we are longing to. It is something that it is not natural for us to be at. So we have to reaffirm our belonging and to be sure that we belong to any framework uh, and and we, we still belong. To so you use that word natural. Um, there is this distinction that seems has uh, cropped up over time. You go all the way back to the uh, ancient Greek notions of belonging where they conceive of people as being part of some kind of in uh, a way maybe a seamless whole uh, within society that is something that's not necessarily chosen it's not a maybe not even be uh, something that's a conscious facet of one's uh, psychological makeup but rather it's simply a natural state that you find yourself in 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. The idea of uh, pre-existing unity that belonging is about. So belonging is about uh, reconstructing this pre-existing unity, which appears, by the way, at the same time in the biblical literature, with the idea of you know Adam and Eve being uh, initially part of the very same uh, united uh, um, entity or, or corpus. This is one way to explain belonging. In, in a natural way. And, and this kind of ex- explanation uh, was very dominant in, in either post-biblical or post-Hellenic traditions alike. But, you know, at some point, um, well, perhaps one of the landmarks for this uh, history is Ibn Khaldun, uh, the 14th century uh, uh, Arab uh, thinker, sociologist, we could say, but obviously a brilliant intellectual, where he defined belonging as some illusion, some constructive illusion that we have to create ourselves. So he maybe expressed the idea that it is not necessarily something neutral. And the fact that for many ages and, 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 and with a long history, we were trying to explain belonging in natural terms also indicate how crucial and how fundamental belonging was for the human history. It was something that we were not willing to accept other answers rather than some natural answer. Uh, and I think once we think about belonging as something which is, which is cultural constructed, uh, which is something that is invented by human being, oh, um, um, something that had to do with the conscience. And, and when even Khaldun says it's, it's a very functional and constructive illusion, there is something that deliberating with this idea. So we don't look for the natural basis for belonging. Uh, we could understand that the natural need for belonging, it is indeed there. It is a natural need. But nevertheless, the answer of belonging is not so natural anymore. So uh, the I guess the, the 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 asymmetry between the naturalness of the of the 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 problem and the uh, and the and then and, and, and the fact that the, the answer is not necessarily natural. It's not something essential, rather something that is changeable and it is dependent on our decisions and about our uh, um, contingent history. I think helps us to understand more uh, more uh, uh, comprehensively that belonging is coming from uh, a, a, an existential concern, but the answer varies and they are not necessarily natural. And, and therefore, we could also develop more in, 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 in on, le- on various levels on, on, uh, uh, of answers of, of belonging. So the way we've discussed it so far, these are rather abstract uh, concepts. There's the notion of belonging uh, that may be a quote-unquote natural, objective condition for individuals. But then, as you noted, there's the medieval uh, distinction made by Ibn Khaldun regarding it being kind of what we today would call a social construct or an imaginary or artificial kind of condition. Uh, But you also talk about the notion of belonging in very concrete terms, in terms of how it actually organizes and affects people's lives across or through different societies. You pick particular societies, especially in the Mediterranean, but you talk about family relations or family status. What does it mean to be part of a family? Also, what is it? Uh, what are the legal obligations within a given society? And in modern times, uh, and we'll get to this later, of course, we'll talk about the political ramifications of this. So let's talk about, uh, let's start with family, for example. Uh, how are the different notions of belonging actually going to impact families and family structure? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I, from the very first, uh, you know, uh, phases of, of, you know, the science of sociology and the like, I think the, 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 the search for the uh, basics of belongings went to families or incest relations uh, because family, you know, it is exactly where we are thinking about the natural basis for 
some affinity and connect, connectedness. And we also see where culture comes in and shapes um, the idea of belonging. Um, so it, it, obviously family ties are, are, are you know, are perhaps the Lutus paper, Lutus paper where to look at uh, uh, um, belonging ties and the like. I remember the first one of the first texts which struck me about belonging was the ancient uh, Roman law about adoption. And adoption, as in a you know a legal institution, the Roman law was uh, defined as an imitation of nature. Rather, you know, it is about creating filia, creating relations between parent and a child, but not in a natural way, but by, by imitating nature. So the Roman, the, the law says, adaptionem uh, naturam imitatur. And, um, and, and when St. Thomas later on refers to this uh, idea, so he explains it by referring to the way that Aristotle define, defines arts. And uh, the idea of, 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 of art as imitating the natural existing, as imitating natural forms or natural entities, the, you know, the Greek ideas of aesthetics, um, was taken by, 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 by St. Thomas to explain that we are imitating nature where nature fails. So, uh, you know, we, we, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, breed and procreate. Therefore, we have these legal tools to imitate nature and, in fact, to fix, overcome the failures of nature and to create, to create you know, artificial ways of belonging. So um, belo- family, family structures all through the way of the Western history is about a mixture of natural bases and and some artificial or cultural institutions. So marriage is obviously something that we are creating a connection that was not first uh, existing in nature, but we treat it as a natural connection. Um, and, 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 and therefore, the grappling with the definition of family, and obviously incest laws is the place to look at it, because incest laws is about belonging in the sense that when you define who is it prohibited to sleep with and who, is, who are you allowed to sleep with, is about really drawing the line of belonging, who is in and who is out. So I was I was I was looking I was very uh, excited with you know various uh, legal regulations of incest and mainly at the points where there were changes in the legal material when there were some legal changes or legal reforms changing perspectives about legal uh, regulations of incest incestual relations. And I found it uh, as, as, as a moment, uh, exact, exciting moments of grappling with belonging. And, and uh, you know, they didn't use the terms that we use nowadays, the belongings and affinity and so on. So they used, obviously, the traditional, technical, legal uh, terms. But it was exactly about belonging. How do we see the framework of belonging? With what, what does it mean to belong? And, uh, you know, in, in, in some of the chapters in my book, I, I, it was really uh, fascinating for me to realize that what was at stake for the jurists with the, when they, you know, uh, you know modifying the, these regulations, it is about how to define or how to define anew the frameworks of belonging or, or how to rearticulate the idea of kinship. What does it mean to be in kin ties? And so in order to explain how this occurred or the debates uh, occurred in real time, you refer to, in particular, Jewish history and the Koreaite um, sect within Judaism. Can you explain that role in particular and how that helps develop your ideas of how belonging impacted people's understandings of their place in the world? Yeah, let me just say a few words about the Kara, I think, because they're not that known, uh, you know, apart from academic circles. The Karaites were actually a marginal sect. And uh, in fact, we know that it was not only one sect, it was uh, there were various sects, which opposed the rabbinite 
mainstream traditional Judaism. And uh, most of them shared the premises that they rejected the Talmudic tradition and they rejected tradition as an unquestionable source of knowledge. So they were skeptic, you know, they were skeptic about even their own tradition. They checked they checked and rechecked all the time their traditions, and they were very suspicious that, you know, they got it wrong. They might have got it wrong. And uh, then I came across this 11th century legal reform. You know, we look, we talk a lot about the theories of legal reforms, and this was a legal reform, a lachit legal reform, that was hardly studied in the modern scholarship. And we have, it is, it is a reform that is documented, and most of the documents are still existing in uh, in the archives. The manu- you know, manuscripts are were mainly held in the St. Petersburg lab- libraries, so there was no access for Western scholars for many years. But now we have access, and 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 we have a chance to examine this legal reform. And uh, and 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 the more I studied this complicated text, you know, it was not only about deciphering the Arabic, the Judeo-Arabic, the AD medieval. Uh, uh, very, very difficult Hebrew uh, scriptures, but it was also to understand their cal- calculations about the degrees of, of relatives and alike. And the more I digged into that, I realized that this reform was about realizing that some set of ideas that explained kinship were not valid anymore. And they accused their rabbis, their, their, tradition, their traditional authorities, that they got it wrong what kinship is about. And they were trying to propose a different conceptions of what kinship is about and accordingly to change the legal regulations. So it was really something serious. It's not, it was not only about reducing the degrees of relative that you are allowed to marry. It was about developing a totally different scope and view about what kinship is about and what does it mean to belong to kinship. So I, I found this uh, this this uh, form exciting. I was, you know, I was I was I was digging in archives. I was I was uh, I, I found wonderful uh, manuscripts um, and unstudied manuscripts. And 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 then I realized <laughs> again and again it was about belonging. It was not just about you know legal rhetoric. It was not just about uh, you know intellectual acrobatics of how to interpret principles and how you could play with them. It was something much deeper. It was about coming up with new perspective about belonging. So can you explain more specifically how the Karaites uh, saw belonging in distinction or in contrast to the uh, the Rabbinite um, view? Yeah. Well, in, in, in a nutshell, it, it, the previous idea of belonging was that belong that kinship is about selfness. To belong to a kinship, to belong to a family, to be part of a family, namely, it was meant to be part, to take part of, of, of the same selfness. And it was based on the scriptural ideas of, uh, obviously, the core idea is the, the verse in Genesis that, you know, uh, the, the Adam and Eve, when they, uh, uh, united, they became one united flash, so the two became one, right? Um, and they, it, this, it, it was interpreted in the very same way that it was interpreted in the church history, that, you know, they, are, they were either meant to be together and this tie is not to be dissolved, but the Karite made the emphasis on on the spiritual aspect of this unification. Namely, they said that, you know, when once a man and a woman are united, they become one flesh, and not only one flesh, but also one one spirit. Uh, and, and in fact, they use the Arabic term nafs, which is not only the spirit uh, or the soul, it is about the self. So they became one self. And this idea, when they thought about it in, in you know, legally, it had enormous implementations. For, implementations. for example, so 
in a very same way that the the the, the canon law uh, approached uh, marriage, they also understood that once uh, a man and a woman are you know coupled, they're united, they become one entity, one self. Uh, but you know, since they uh, they they allow divorce, or you know, in the case of of, of being widowed, they ask, what happens if one of if one of if, if one of the couple, you know, say for example, um, the woman was married again to another person, what are the relations between the second husband and the first husband? And they said, you know, they're obviously part of the same self. And its legal implementation was that the sister of the second husband was considered legally as the sister of the first husband. And she was prohibited to marry the first husband. And so and on and so forth. Namely, it was extended, you know, presumably uh, with no cutting edge because they had this idea about the self that is, it is extended in a very contagious way. And, and they used the metaphor of 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 being uh, of being of being uh, not only being polited but even con- you know being uh, being trans- transmitting the selfness as as a disease. So you know the idea was it was it was also termed in the other tradition, which took it in the very same way through the term contagio carnalis. Namely, there is something that is transmitted through corporeal union, and they pointed out that it is about the selfness. So basically, belonging was to be, to take part in the very same self. Now, the reform was about dismantling this idea of kinship and belonging, and providing a new definition of what does it mean to belong to. And they came out with the idea, uh, you know, we could nowadays think about it in terms of network. To be, to belong to something means to be part of a network, network rather to be part of the self. Namely, that you have some structural relations between the relatives without determining that they are part of the very same self. So you could describe the kinship of the family in structural terms. As a family tree, as a family, you know, they had other metaphors, uh, but they are all structural conceptions, rather, there's, there, there, rather than something more essential as selfness. So, did this allow for greater intermarriage, or, in other words, did this was this reform in conceiving what was structural versus "quote unquote" natural, perhaps? Did that allow for broader notions of what was permitted or more permissiveness in regard to who one could marry? Yes, indeed. So, so obviously, the first impact was to, much more individuals were permit were permitted to marry each other. But this was not all. This was not this was this was not the main thing because, uh, and you know, some scholars who approach it thought that that was the main motive for this reform. And indeed, the very same motive motivated the Canon 50 of the 1215 Lutheran Convention, which also reduced the degrees of prohibited relatives to be married. But this was, well, in in Canon 50, we know quite sure that they had concern about the fact that people, you know, couldn't marry too many individuals around there, so they had they had some urge to to reduce this prohibition. But this is not the case with the Karaites. We have no evidences that, that there were some social concerns that you know they couldn't marry much of their relatives. And I think it was something deeper. It was about how to understand relatedness. So, for example, once you think about kinship in terms in in, in structural terms. You also define siblings differently. So siblings were concerned, you know, follow, follow that reform as less relatives than parents, for example. Siblings were concerned relatives only in the sense that they shared the same parents, but not as being part of the same self. Um, and, and, and so I, I guess it did affect their emotional 
framework that did affect their attitudes. Uh, so, so indeed, it did allow them to marry much more individuals, but this is not the main thing. And I, I don't think that they were urged by that, and I don't think that this was all about. They, they wouldn't made so many efforts, and they wrote, you know, they wrote dozens of books about it. If it was only about about allowing much more individuals to marry each other, it was something even deeper, I would argue. So how historically successful were the Karite ref- uh, moves to reform? Well, first, we could, we could definitely say that they succeeded in the sense that most of the Karites followed that reform. Indeed, we, we, we know about an attempt in the 16th century to revive the previous perception. Uh, but that attempt didn't succeed. You know, it is also well documented, but we don't know followers of that. We don't, not many followers of that attempt. So on a practical level, they did succeed. But I think it's more than that. I think in general, the same move from essential understanding of kinship to a structural one is not unique to the Karai tradition. In many ways, you could also trace that shift in other Western, you know, Western Latin uh, um, uh, context. And, and, and this is the point where kinship was portrayed through family trees rather than um, than images of a body, of a corpus and the like. And did affect also the general Western um, um, history of ideas, but not in in the same sharp way that it occurred in the Kari tradition, because for them it was it was not you know a natural evolution of the concept. It was a point where they rejected their traditional perception. They claimed it to be wrong, and this is also something very unique about the Karites. They were not obliged or committed to tradition. Therefore, it was a radical change, I would say, or radical legal reform in the sense that they could blame their author- the previous authorities to be wrong. And they, did, they just got it wrong. They just understood the scriptures in a, in a wrong way. And, and they offered a new reading in the scriptures and new definitions. So the move from natural or essential perception of kinship to, towards a structural one, I think we, 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 we could see that in many other traditions, in many other points through the history, not in a very sharp move as we see it in the Karaites case. And the Karaites case is radical because it's, it's, you know, it's like a U-turn. It's, it's like, you know, claiming, you know, it was totally wrong. <laughs> we have to, uh, you have to wake up and uh, still remain within the, the Karite tradition and Karite legal readings, but to understand the very basic concept differently. Well, it's interesting. You note, though, that even though uh, the marriage opportunities were not the main concern of the reform, it does seem to me, and maybe I'm, I want to make sure I'm getting this historically correct, that the Karite reform produces greater choice and more breadth and opportunities for intermarriage or, or marriage opportunities among different uh, previously forbidden marital relations or familial relations, whereas at the same time or roughly at the same time in the Middle Ages, especially the early Middle Ages all the way through in the Christian church, you're having a restriction on marital opportunities. In other words, the reform in the Christian church seems to be tightening who you can marry, whereas the Karite reform is trying to broaden, even though that may not be the main concern or objective. Is that right? Well, uh, to be more precise, the later Christian reform and the, the reform in the church was also much more broadening the opportunities to move. But in that case, we know that they were troubled by social concerns. So it, it is a totally different reform. Um, um, so you know, and, and you know, the first the first scholars who looked at the Karaites reform indeed was were trying to explain the Karaites reform in terms of the Canon Fifty, 
because that was, you know, the very famous case that they knew and they knew all the uh, context, contextual details that it was about social concerns. So they applied it to the Carright case. But, you know, that may be the differences between a legal historian which is interested in the intellectual, intellectual history and legal historian who is interested in the social uh, or economic history. Um, I, I, well, I, I first, you know, I learned that, you know, I thought, I presumed that it was also about some social concerns. But the more I read the text, I found, found no evidence that there were any social concerns about uh, extending the per- permitted uh, individuals to be married. On the other hand, they were much more concerned about conceptions and ideas. So maybe I'm too, putting too emphasis about concepts and ideas uh, b- because of my inclinations though that. But again, you know, in this case, you find no practical evidence to social concerns. On the other hand, you find the huge ur- urges on uh, as a matter of of, of legal definition and intellectual understanding of kinship. So, um, so yeah, so, so it is, it, you know, I, I would, I would make the difference between the, the church reform and the Karait reform in the sense that it was not only about, uh, the different motives that they had, but it was also about being troubled by different, uh, different, uh, barriers or different burdens. Uh, once it is only a social concerns, you know, you had just have to find the authority to make these changes if you are convinced that these changes are justified and are needed. But once it is about, you know, an accurate understanding of the scriptures and accurate understandings of what belonging is, then you need to recruit different arms and use different faculties and different argumentations. So it's uh, it, it, it's in many ways uh, different reform, even though the consequences are alike. So we've been talking about the period of reform in the Middle Ages in the Christian Church versus in um, uh, Jewish uh, law regarding the family. Let's fast forward to another area that you discuss, which is in the modern period, uh, in particular in the 17th century, in the debate between the English political theorists, Robert Filmer and John Locke. Mm -hmm. So you talk about their conceptions of the family and how it relates to political order. Um, And so let's explain that debate. Yeah. Well, again, I, you know, this is, this is one of the cases which, you know, everyone knows, everyone, you know, this famous take where Locke is arguing with Robert Filmer. But I, when I studied this as, as a young student, I, you know, I, I, I was taught that this was about, you know, monarchy and, you know, it was liberal ideas versus uh, justification for the monarchy. Um, and the more I read Locke deeply, I understood that he was troubled much more uh, with his, you know, the coherency of his liberal ideas and not only with either justifying or objecting monarchy. And, uh, and, and, and therefore I realized that it was concerned about, uh, I would say the epistemological backdrop of the idea of, of political authority, political, political privileges, um, um, and so, so you know, they argued about what does it mean? What, 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 what's, what's the meaning of the, of the political authority? And um, you know, the traditional monarch answer was that that political authority or political power is some kind of manifestation of the natural authority, the parental authority that uh, um, is is established in the family framework, and it was only extended to the political realm. So it was basically, you know, phenomenologically, it was the very same relations, the very same idea of authority. And when, when, when John Locke was trying to develop the liberal ideas of the political realm, he had to answer that too. What is what are the sources of the political 
authority. And he came up with the answer that separates the family and the political as two distinct realms. But more than that, he also defined anew the, the idea of parental parental authority or the parental uh, power. Uh, so in many ways, he, it was awakening from the old ancient fundamentals uh, of the parental power in the Roman family, the, uh, the power of the household that is all at the hands of the father. And what does it mean to have the power over your household? And what does it mean if you are liberal to have a parental power or parental authority towards the individuals as the members of the family? And I was struck, I remember, by, um, by Locke's definition of the parental authority in terms of um, uh, what was it? He used the metaphor of uh, um, um, uh, stippling clothes, something like that. Something that is instrumental and functional. And I, the first thing I thought at that time is whether John Locke had kids at all. I was a young father at that time, and it was striking for me to think about my parenthood as something moral, instrumental, and functional. That I'm only being a parent until my son is independent and is is you know it um, doesn't need my assistance anymore. And 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 therefore I I think that there I there their their argument was about how to understand first and foremost parental power parental authority, and once you have a different attitudes towards that, you also come you also come to the political realm with different with different with a different starting point, with a different back background to start discussing what political authority is about. It is uh it's my recollection that Locke did not marry and had no children as far as we know. <laughs> well, I thought he had some illegal, illegal uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about that either, but anyhow, <laughs> that was a point to be really complaining about what drives a person to come to such a radical definition, which is, you know, it is challenging intellectually. And of course, Locke and Filmer are both rooting their arguments in biblical interpretation. Yes, indeed. Well, and so, I should go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, no. Well, I, yeah, yeah. So that was another thing which struck me because I was just interested in exegesis and how people take the scriptures to such different ways. So, uh, and it was one of these cases, you know, when they had totally different readings of the situation in heaven, you know. So while Filmer understood Adam, as the prime archetype, paradigmatic idea of being a parent, um, um, you know, a parent, you know, that that was endowed to be a parent by God, and, and that was endowed by the power to be a parent and to control and uh, have the power upon his successors. Look had a totally different interpretation and maybe a total different experience of what does it mean to be the, the, the soul and first person in the human history. He, had, uh, he, he understood Adam as an orphan rather than a parent. And I think it's, it's, it's a very core existential idea of the individuality. And, you know, individuality in Locke's liberalism is about being an individual with, with no power upon you. And if there is a need to be under some power, it's only instrumental, it's in only on your behalf, it's only as long as it serves your interests. So, I, you know, this is a totally different approach, the very same literary description of the situation. And going back to where we started before, you know, uh, the Bible describes Adam also carrying the problem of being alone. That's why God, you know, God was upset about creating him as a soul, uh, solitude creature. And he was trying to fix that by, you know, 
first introducing the other animals, and then when it didn't work, he created uh, the female. And then he said, okay. But the very same, you know, primordial situation of being solitude was experienced and interpreted by these two thinkers so differently. And that was a launching point to totally diametric political views about political power. And that's what you go on to describe, which is this, as you see it, uh, turning point in the development of notions, uh, personal notions of, of belonging in regard to the family, but also the role of the family within uh, politics in the Western world uh, and the development of liberalism, the notions of individualism and consent, which is so famously associated with Locke, really has sprouted new notions of how should the law treat or regard the family, um, whether it's extended or in a nuclear family, as we call it today. You talk about this distinction between paternalistic views of the family versus organic and apolitical views. Can you explain those three different areas? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess what I was trying also to, in many ways, to come close to the, uh, the grappling with the very same challenge by Christian theologians in the past few generations. And, you know, the endowers of the church in the Holy theme. So, you know, I'm talking about John Paul II mainly, but to, 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 to define the need and the justification for the family in terms of common good and in terms of a place where uh, politics reaches and stops. So the family as an apolitical realm. I guess nowadays perhaps I should insert into that the concept of privacy, which we are, you know, this is one of the things that actually uh, came out from this study. Um, I'm much more aware of the problem of privacy, private realm nowadays, not only because it is a hot topic in legal theory, but because I do think that it is, it is another concept which I would place next to belonging and identity. It is a concept for which we understand ourselves. And, 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 and Locke was also, you know, you know, by, 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 by stressing the, the, you know, and restressing the distinction between the private and the public realm. Um, is also um, uh, uh, placing privacy or, or, or the definition of privacy vis-a-vis -vis the public and publicity as crucial to the liberal theory. And I think this is the question of the place of the family in the liberal society. And by the idea of of defining the family as apolitical, uh, I, I would say an apolitical island within the politics, within the, the overwhelming politics. So everything is political, but the family is a place which is pretend to be apolitical in many ways. So some of the standards that are applicable in the political realm are not necessarily applicable in the family realm. So for example, while we cannot, we cannot uh, tolerate inequality in the political realm, we think that inequality within the, within the family is not something that we, it's intolerable. It's something that it is a private issue to the same family. So maybe we could object it. Maybe we could uh, be, be troubled by that. But it is we treat it differently. We 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 don't feel the same urge to intervene in inequality within the family. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not talking about something which is insulting uh, and something that is. Uh, um, um, Depressing, but you know, um, uh, inequalities in the same that you know you don't treat your children equally in the same that you treat individuals in your workplace in the same. Uh, you find a way to treat your children in the right way that you think that it is deserved, but not necessarily in the same way that it is expected in the public room. So. Uh, 
but by, by this, I was trying to say that that may, might be a source of justification for the political meaning of the family in a liberal society. A family is a place where are you are you could escape political uh, uh, urges and political standards. A, a family is a place where it's not only uh, a refuge, but it is a place that you could experience different standards. You could experience uh, uh, you know, um, other principles that you could not allow yourself to experience, by the way, in the political realm. Um, and in that way, the private family and the public liberal society have some interplay between them because the political realms needs these apolitical uh, experiences. A political experience is important to be trained for the political life and also to escape the political lives and to to be more precise of what is what are you expected to behave like in the political realm and what are you expected elsewhere. So th- this was the kind of idea that I was trying to develop based on the liberal uh, seeds of of Locke and others that. The family is justified and it is important because perhaps the family is one of the very few paradigmatic manifestations of a private realm, of a privacy. And, um, and, and he, you know, not only that the, the, the state should act for the benefits of the individual, the private individuals, but they should also allow their privacy, which is not political. Do I make any sense to you? Yes, uh, but it seems, as you acknowledge, that in the modern West, uh, in the United States in particular, I can think of many uh, or several examples of where uh, this concern with the concern that is brought to the fore in the liberal context, the liberalism that we've inherited from Locke and other thinkers uh, in regard to individualism and the ability to uh, consent to one's role in society or one's place in society. Uh, it, on the one sense, in one sense, it's liberating, so to speak, from the traditionalism of Filmer. But on the other hand, it also invites uh, or provides the basis for which the state can uh, penetrate that uh, area of privacy. And no longer is the family then apolitical, but it's rather an opportunity to try to correct uh, perceptions of imbalance or inequality. And so, for example, legally in the United States, we've abolished interspousal tort immunity. You can now sue your spouse uh, that unity of personhood that was an inheritance from the traditional biblical understanding of marriage is no longer applicable in the United States. And so, and then of course you have the uh, state's responsibilities or at least the, the um, state's potential for taking on responsibilities regarding education of children, et cetera. And you refer to some of these And so it seems a double-edged sword for liberalism, as you rightly, I think, rightly identify liberalism, maybe the breakpoint or the watershed uh, event historically, because on the one hand, it allows for a separation and a a distinction between the family uh, destructure and the way it functions versus the way the larger political state functions. But on the other hand, that larger political state can turn around and uh, try to mold the family in its image, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We with, with you, and, and and you put it in very, you know, perhaps in a better way than I did it before. Again, it is very, it is very tricky in the sense that obviously we, you know, we we should take seriously the state's responsibility and its capacity to intervene and to regulate and even to educate uh, individuals within the family and to uh, obviously to instruct and 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 you know, to, to see how how things are developing from there. You know, everything starts at home, indeed. Nevertheless, I think that claiming that everything is political and uh, is also troubling. Think about privacy nowadays. You know, our concerns now they be with privacy. Um, 
which perhaps might be the, the new front for battling the the borderlines of of the political in the in the private uh, realm. Um, you know, w- there are so many advantages in the fact that um, you know advanced AI technologies can read my preferences and tell me and instruct me and lead me to my preferences. You know, so the uh, the, the private advertisement it, it's it's a wonderful thing. And by the way, in other places in the world, they think it's brilliant and they they bless it and celebrate it. And we, I'm, I'm also celebrating that, you know, because I'm, when I'm looking at something uh, on the web, I'm very happy that I'm getting so many offers the other day. <clears throat> but we are, I'm not so comfortable with the fact that my preferences are much more transparent to someone else, either a machine or some other individual, before I'm I'm aware to that. So, you know, so intervening in our privacy, it's something very helpful. It's something very blessed in that sense. But we still need the capability to control these borderlines, or at least to have some, to some illusion maybe, that we control or have some control about our private life. Because this experience of controlling our private sphere, I think it is important for our behavior later on. So in that sense, I agree. And, and uh, um, I, if I was try, if, if, if I sound like something that is justifying, you know, some uh, injustices in, in, in family realms and with in, in blocking any intervention, so I was mis mis uh, understood and I did not explain myself correctly. Obviously, I mean, uh, the, the intervention of the liberal state uh, is totally justified. And, 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 and again, you know, and as, we, as we saw it in so many uh, legal changes, mainly with regard to uh, um, defining rape between married spouses and, and the like, I think it's, it's, it's totally justified. And, but I think again the experience of having a private realm where I control my preferences and I control my um, uh, initiatives and ideas. I think it's a crucial experience for every individual before entering, not only chronologically, before entering the public sphere again. I think it it is empowering the individual in the power sphere when he has. Of uh, experience in the private sphere as a political sphere. The book is entitled Kinship, Law and Politics and Anatomy of Belonging. And we've been joined today with its author, Joseph E. David. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much. 